welcome to another week of the Learning Curve, dear listeners. We are we're throwing you a curveball this week because Gerard Robinson, who um, you know is known for taking yacht trips and among other things, I think a couple weeks ago he was on a super secret yacht. Is he's off again, undisclosed location? But this week we've got pinch hitting the Jarrell Bradford. Jarrell, so happy to have you here today. And this is the first time we've actually really talked since you took a new position at yeah. Fisican. Yeah, How so are you doing? I, I'm delighted to be here. I just want to say that's a lot of shade at Gerard. I can't wait. I know. You know, we love him, but he just he's he lives the life, man. I don't know. It's I'm jealous. I, I do also want to say I think on Twitter I I, I, I was happy to take the invite. I committed to doing this. Only with the caveat that we had to talk soccer for a little bit. So even if it's only for like 10 Ooh, seconds, we can talk about whatever Boca's doing or something like that. Or or maybe that was it. But uh, Well, you know, Gerard and I talked a little bit last week. Did you see Did you see the Argentina game? Did you see Messi is like, he just... Yeah, he, he owes Angel Di Maria his career, basically. Oh that, was my pretty, God. that was a pretty good finish. Well, let me nice. let me tell you what I said the exact same thing to my husband and my two children. The well, the third doesn't understand what's going on, and they, they looked at me like, "Are you speaking ill of the great?" And I was like, <laughs> the great no, man, but he didn't score it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, apparently Tottenham, which you know I suffer for, are trying to sign one of Argentina's central defenders. I think his name is Romero. So uh, uh-huh. well, uh, he, he plays for Atalanta right now. So we will see what happens. So very good. And what about the the that England game, man? That was- <laughs> uh, I can't. Uh, that was. Oh, man. I just, I'm, I'm dying all over again. I can't it believe was so that. painful, but dying well. all over. Again. As soon as they went to penalties, I knew. It was, as soon as they went to overtime, I knew it was over. It was just like the setup was wrong. Like it just, uh, uh, I don't know. All right, so we've got a lot of great soccer fans in our orbit, Jarrell, and I'm so so happy to discover that more and more. It's such a great sport. Now, you, though, my friend, I want to talk about you because you, you uh, took a new job recently. And yeah. congratulations. And, like, so tell us tell us what you're up to. What what are the, the heady thoughts that you're having right now in this new position? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I, I, I was the... I was employee number three. Now I'm employee number two, basically. <laughs> uh, so I I, uh, I took a role as the president of Fifty Can, um, and I, I succeeded uh, our sort of founding president, who worked with our um, CEO and founder for about a decade. Um, and so uh, it's a big responsibility is very close to her, um, and she's already off doing amazing things, which is great. Um, so big shoes to fill. Um, I guess the the. The one thing, well, the number one thing is that you just go from having like your problems to everybody's problems. So that's kind of, that's kind of a thing. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Which I'm sure other presidents know. But the um, I would say my my priorities. So we we split up the work in the organization where I have policy and communications primarily, and then obviously like play a big part in the overall strategy with Mark Porter McGee, who's our <clears throat> who's our CEO and founder. I guess my like big rocks, if you want to uh, call it that. Um, one of them is is just, um, we have this a policy framework that we call Believe in Better, which is kind of like, in the education systems of the future, here are the things you should get, right? Or like here, here are how the systems should organize themselves. And it's like, uh, you know, the education that's right for you, that's like, you know, sort of a school choice thing. And and open connected learning, it's like, you know, what have, what have we learned about learn everywhere and like course choice and all these other things, you know, and like the fit the our, our, what we call pillar five is really about career. 
Um, and most people really like dig talking about that from um, like a, like a 30,000 foot standpoint. They're like, yeah, okay, this makes sense to me. The challenge is like translating that into, into policies that, um, that our states can, can act on. You know, we're, we're in the business of, of supporting local leaders who pass laws, right? We're advocating yeah. for, uh, for, for the change of laws to improve education for all kinds of kids in all kinds of places. Um, and that's just hard. And I, I think it's it's hard just in part if you are like a, a an ed reform person, because, you know, ed change, education change has a very defined vocabulary. Um, and it's just hard to talk about something different because like the words aren't there. Now, yeah. the, the worst thing about the pandemic is that 60 million kids really got the short end of the stick. The best thing about it is that a lot of the examples you need to be able to talk about what that future is came into existence. Um, and so that's our our big primary thing. That's my big primary project. I'm trying to uh, build out what the actual policy framework is so that our states can use it and so that everybody can use it. And hopefully we can uh, get more wins for kids. So that's kind of. Darrell, uh, I have to say right there, what you just said about the pandemic, like giving us the language to talk about the the you know, the problems with our education. That's one of the things I think that I know I appreciate about you. And I think a lot of folks really, your ability to translate wonk into like real people talk. (laughs) Wonk into humor. (laughs) Just wonk into words. I mean, it is, it's a really, it's a skill. It's a skill and you have it. And we're all very, very pleased. And I don't, uh, you know, I'm not much for the Twitterverse, but when I see happy news, like, you know, you being elevated to this position, I think I can, you know, a lot of people were really pleased with that. And we're looking forward to what you're going to do. And you and I think in our, in our day to day. You're a great partner in this whole thing. It is is wonderful to work with you. And uh, if Gerard was here, I would say that too, but because he's not here, I I get to say it. He doesn't have to laugh along. I know. Right. And he's like off drinking champagne somewhere. So. He's going to he's going to kill me next week. Um, No, but yeah, you and I, we do. There's some similarities in what I do during my day at at Excel and Ed and and for Pioneer Institute and what you do, too. And one of the things that we've both been thinking about that we've all been thinking about just way too damn much, but we have to keep thinking about it, is what's going on with these COVID relief funds, the endless the seemingly endless march, like, right? A lot of money. Oh, just today I was writing more about the state and local um, recovery bucket, right? So that that bucket that's not, wasn't even intended for schools that, by the way, you could use it for schools. And um, so there's an article, my, my story of the week, as we always have, was an article in the Wall Street Journal. Schools are turning stimulus funds into teacher bonuses. And you know, I love this one because as I think I was I was talking about last week, I had a conversation with some friends over a very safe, you know, small dinner <laughs> at my home. <laughs> and, um, and one of the things that uh, one of my friends said, he was like, they should just pay teachers more money. And of course, as you and I know, um, bad idea to just like bump salaries with a bunch of money that's going to run out at some point in the future. But this article is talking about bonuses. And I got to say, as a former teacher, um, as as somebody whose kids were so damn lucky to be in school every single day of last year when so many families weren't. And I saw my teachers working their tushies off and the teachers who had to do remote working their tushies off as well. 
they're exhausted, they're tired, all, all of the things, right? And taking on all these additional responsibilities. I love the idea of, you know, figuring out how to reward teachers for that year, especially when, as we know, not all, but many of them probably aren't making what they could in other careers and what they what they might be a good reflection of their work. But one of the things this article points out, so it's talking about, well, two, two questions it raises. And the first is whether or not this is legal. So I'm going to, you know, so some like Florida is saying, whoop, hold the phone. We don't know if you can do this. It might not be allowable under your ESSER funds, schools, that, uh, states that are trying to use it for that. Sure. Right. And I'm going to say it is probably legal. I don't know. I want to know what you think. But the other part of this is our friend Marguerite Rosa, who we talk about a lot on this show, yep. you know, she's quoted as saying, hey, yeah, like, whoa, hold up. We need to be thinking in terms of incentive structure. So there's no problem with giving teachers bonuses, but are you just going to give them a one-time check and not be sure if they're going to show up next year? Like if we're talking about a teacher shortage in some places and a need to retain talent, like what is this going to look like? Is it a blank check or are we going to tie it to something else? And I really love that idea. I think that one of the big misses in all of this money coming down is any meaningful discussion except from the wonkery, you know, about like, what do we, what do we expect? What should states be expecting of districts? How should they be incenting them to spend their own funds, whether they're trying to say, Hey, we're going to start this program. We want you to, we'll match your local dollars with our state funds. There are a bunch of things that we could do, not only in terms of retaining teachers, figuring out if they're going to come back, but also like incenting professional development in really productive ways that are aligned with what kids need. So I, I liked this article. I think it raised some, some really interesting questions. And of course, anytime we have our friend Marguerite Rosa quoted in the wall street journal, we have to bring it up. But what, what do you think about this topic? Darrell? Yeah. I, so I'm, I'm not sure, uh, uh, Marguerite Rosa would recognize me at a cocktail party, but I'm a fan. Um, I think she drops it like it's hot all the time uh, and really does yep. like she's like in a lane that that you wish somebody else is in. It's like research that hurts, you know. <laughs> um, so I, so I, I, I am a fan and I, I agree with her take. So I have like a, a, a couple of things on this. So, um, you know, I, I do. So kind of like Eric Hanischek said back in the day, both good teachers and bad teachers respond to bonus incentives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's it's important to remember that like people who are great at the jobs and people who are terrible at their jobs both want more money for their jobs, um, and uh, and I do like I, I appreciate what you what you said, Kara. Like I know a lot of people have been working really hard, even though not all. And obviously the politics of some of this have been uh, awful on purpose. But there are a bunch of teachers who really did not mail it in, right? Who really went the extra yeah. mile, and you know America's families that uh, thank those teachers for that. But you got. Like, I'm for more for more, not more for the same, not more for less or more for maybe, right? And that's what's been, that's what's been set up, right? We, we, we have, um, you know, one of my fellows, Alex Burr, he wrote this piece about how there's a district in, in Kentucky that's basically ready to give, up, give out bonuses, ostensibly because they have a retention problem, except they haven't lost anybody, right? And they don't know if everybody, and like ostensibly to bring people back and they don't know if everybody will. So it's like, here's the money, maybe you'll come back. You know, here's the money for teachers that we think we lost that we didn't lose, right? And, and I yeah. think what you, what we're sort of seeing in all of these instances, right? Where like the, the nugget is 
how do we use money to incentivize like or reward positive behavior over the last year and into the future is that nobody's thinking this through. Right? Everybody's like, oh, wow, this money, they print it in D.C. It just falls yeah. out of the sky, right? There's and, more, and, there's and more. And we have to spend it because if we don't spend it, they'll take it back, right? Or if we don't spend it, they won't give us more in the future, right? So they're like, what can we do with it? And somebody goes, just just give it away, you know? Like, And, and, what, and so a, a knee-jerk almost response to this has been to just like bonus teachers without respect to ability, you know? And so... Uh, I, 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 I'm a fan of bonuses when they're merited. I'm not a fan of them when they are money out of the door just to get it out of the door. I couldn't agree more. And I have to tell you, every damn day I'm waiting for that money to fall from the sky, too. Me! 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 <laughs> We're going to go to World Cup, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'll be there. Be there. Uh, well, what are you thinking about for this week? What's, what stories on your mind? Yeah, so um, so Rebecca Klein, who used to be at HuffPo back in the day, and now she's at uh, Hackinger, she wrote this piece called, After a year and a half at home, some parents don't want their kids returning to run-down schools. Um, and it, it's, it's all about New Jersey, so uh, where I uh, pay my taxes, so I'm, I'm always happy. And we're also starting my career, so I'm always happy to stick my thumb in its eye when it, when it deserves it. Um, the piece is very good, uh, and, and it's sort of, it covers um, three things. The protagonist um, is a mom who doesn't want um, her virtual option to go away because her, her son is mildly autistic and the noise of being in a school just, just like is uh, intolerable for him. And so while many kids have had um, a real hard time with poor implementation, I think this is always really important. Like it's not like everybody got... Uh, great virtual instruction where everybody was on the same page and everybody had been prepped for it well. Like most kids got the worst version possible. Like it was poorly organized and poorly implemented. You know, it's like the worst of both worlds. But some kids absolutely thrived. And this woman's child is a kid that was like that. And Phil Murphy, the governor here, who is the like the the patron saint of the teachers unions, um, has said, no, nope, everybody's back in person in the fall. Like you unilateral no more virtual option. And, uh, and I've had some, pro- some, not some, some uh, discussions with our allies about this because, you know, for me, it's just about, it's about parent optionality, right? So I, yep. was, I was as against denying people an in-person option um, as I am against denying them a virtual one after having forcing them to, forced them to have it for a year. And I think the implementation of that is a little complicated, right? I, I think there's some opportunities there to think about like no borders, no boundaries, you know, like if a, if a school in Colorado has a great virtual option, like there's no reason why I can't enroll, shouldn't be able to enroll in it in New Jersey. Like there's no reason why we can't fund that. It, like even not even out of state funds, like we, we could use extra funds to do it, right? And I mean, there's just, yeah. there, there are more opportunities there. So that was a a nugget that was in this was re- that was really good. I think the other thing that sort of a, uh, a note for advocates and the Marguerite Roses of the world is that the the uh, there are lots of folks in here that are basically saying the answer to no virtual is the one best system, right? The monopoly system, <laughs> but but with improved facilities, right? Oh well, there you go. So so faci- <laughs> so this is you know this. This is like, uh, this is foreshadowing, right? This is like, you see the knife on the table in the checkoff play, right? You know, the knife is coming back. 
in act three, you know? So, um, so uh, I, I only highlight this to say, it's like important things about New Jersey for, for people to understand. So like the two districts that they talk about, Jersey City and Patterson, you know, both receiving 78% or more of their local, of their school spending in direct state aid, right? So, in, you know, wow. right? Yeah. So it's, it's, and both spending, uh, Patterson, $23,000 a kid and Jersey City, 25. And the with ESSER funds, that's 30 in Jersey City. Like the last time I saw it, it was like another $5,000 a kid. So so the, the districts are, are sort of a wash in money. And New Jersey has a long history of funding these like incredibly expensive um, school construction projects that are court ordered. And because New Jersey is corrupt as all get out, you know, the first time they did it, they appropriated like eight and a half billion dollars and less than half of the schools got spent and a billion dollars of it just like disappeared into the political machine, you know? So so the the idea that all kids need after a year and a half of disruptive, lear disruptive learning that, you know, started in, in, in a genuine fashion, but really exposed itself as like a creature of immense political dysfunction of these, the immense political dysfunction of these institutions, that you would solve that by eliminating somebody's virtual option and spending more money on facilities is ludicrous. So I just want people to know that that's the play they should be, they should, that's the fastball you should be looking out for. I, I can't believe that you seem to be suggesting that there's nothing a new HVAC system can't fix. You know, I'm, I'm all for air conditioning. I mean, like, the what's, <laughs> as I look out of my window, it's like this, like, it's all hazy around here today because of the wildfires smoke from the West, uh, interestingly. It's like, and it's, I don't want to be flip, right? It's not to say that, like, the... That's no, right. we do need some upgrades. But come yeah. on, remember all the unused smart boards after uh, Race to the Top? Exactly. Like, every time I walked into a school, I was like, this is beautiful. How Nobody knows how to use the damn thing. That's right. <laughs> and and I can't actually tell if anybody's learning. So. It's the reverse of our discussion about teacher salary, where, uh, where more isn't always more. Some, sometimes more is less. And that's, that's what I think a lot of families are sort of getting set up for right now, like genuinely going back into this, like eyes open, being like, we need to improve this. But then, you know, the, the wheels of the old machine turning being like, we're going to get ours and we're going to get you. Yeah. And unfortunately, if experience tells us anything, it's that the machine usually wins. But I don't know. We've seen a lot of exceptions in the past couple of years. And I wonder, you know, it's sort of like... Um, all these bosses that are uh, large corporations that are saying, nope, everybody's coming back to work. And then you find out half your staff in from New York city, like moved to Iowa yeah, and, yeah. and they're like, actually, I'm not coming back. And suddenly you need, and they're, they're reversing course. So um, I think that, you know, we, we shall see. There've been a lot of dire predictions about whether this decline in public school enrollment is going to stay. I think a lot of parents feel trapped, but certainly, you know, to the, to the point of the, the, as you said, main character protagonist of the story, right? There are parents who now know that there's something else that can happen. And most of them are pretty damn resourceful and going to find a way. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it, but just to, just to add one, one different thing on that. So if you, if you, if your career for the most part has been about improving the schools that low income kids of color go to, you know, like you've been telling the world that these systems are broadly dysfunctional or self-interested for a long time. And most people are kind of like, it can't be that bad. And yeah. it's just the scale of, of what, like, the challenges of the last year, year and a half were visited upon people who thought that because they had the right mortgage, nothing was ever gonna go wrong. 
Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh man, you guys were really telling the truth. And so if yep. anything is, is different other than the experience, it's that the people showing up asking for something different, there are more of them and they are, it's a, it's a, it's actually a more diverse group of people, which is, which is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm hopeful that that helps change the discussion. So. I have to share that I am um, probably a few months into remote learning 2020 for most people in the fall. Um, some of my, you know, white suburban soccer mom friends were complaining their butts off about what was happening in their schools. And I did say to them, and now you know what it feels like to be a parent who has absolutely no choice, yeah. you know, <laughs> who can't move or, you know, purchase you know, the online tutor for their kids. And then, and many of them said, you know, never really thought about it that way. So, so your point is well taken. Those of us who've been doing this for a long time know. All right. We had it. We're switch gears here because we have an absolutely amazing guest, somebody who has, you know, a, a president has painted her portrait, Darrell. So after this, we are going to be speaking with Miriam Memersadegi, and she is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. We're going to learn lots more about her and her work coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we are so happy to have with us today Miriam Memersadegi. She's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and she is the co-founder of Tavana, a civil society capacity building civic education project for the people of Iran. She has over 20 years of international civil society capacity building experience, including three years of post-conflict work in the Balkan region. She's a 2017 presidential leadership scholar and an advocate for democracy, civic education, internet freedom, and women's rights, particularly in Islamic contexts. Her writing has appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and other publications. She's a frequent speaker at universities and think tanks worldwide, and has appeared on NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and C-SPAN, as well as other English, Persian, and Arabic language radio and television news programs. Ms. Mermisadegi serves as a judge for the national finals of the We the People competition. We love that here at Pioneer. It's a contest assessing knowledge of the Constitution among high school teams across the U.S., and this part is super cool. She was among the 43 individuals whose portrait President George W. Bush painted for his April 2021 book, Out of Many, One, Portraits of America's Immigrants. She was born in Tehran and emigrated to the U.S. shortly after the 1979 Iranian Revolution. Miriam Memersadegi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am particularly excited to talk to you today. Your bio is absolutely fascinating, and we feel so pleased that you would join us. Let's tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. So as I mentioned, you were born and you spent your early years in the Shah's Iran, and then you emigrated in 79. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about what you remember or your, your family's story at that time? And then, you know, I think that this is... <laughs> Most Americans, we have a certain vision of Iran, something that we see on the news or hear on the radio, maybe read in the newspaper for some of us. But what do you think we should be talking to American students so that they can better appreciate the current regime? It's really difficult not to overstate the difference. I mean, before and after the revolution in Iran is night and day. It can be difficult, I think, for people, particularly young people, living in a free democratic society that, like the United States, has really always been free and democratic. I mean, we're always getting better, 
we're always getting more equal, more free, more perfect union. But the United States never had to face dictatorship or totalitarian regime. And uh, Iran before the revolution was not a free and democratic, but it was a society that was an open society that was liberalizing, really progressing very quickly to becoming an egalitarian society. Um, minorities and women uh, enjoyed rights that um, really surpassed other countries in the region and um People in general were aspiring for more and more civil and political liberties, but compared to what happened very, very quickly after the um, Islamist revolution of 1979, uh, they were able to express their demands and they were able to press for more and more accountability from the government. Whereas now under the current system, and the, the current system has been as repressive as it is today since day one. And if anything, at the very beginning of um, this regime, right after the revolution, uh, the, some of the most uh, violent and uh, scary aspects of its rule were seen. So immediately after the revolution erupted in, in Iran, I was a first grader at a French international school in Tehran. And very quickly, our school became the locus for revolutionary activity. Uh, people who are called Hezbollahis took over our school and in the school itself really changed the aesthetics, changed the discourse, changed our books, changed our teachers, changed how we moved, what we said. The change was so fast that I remember thinking as a child that the adults, my parents and other adults, had no idea what was going to happen, what was happening in society at large because it was happening so quickly. But we got something of a sneak preview because uh, they had taken over our school very, very early on. It's really amazing to think that you have a memory of that so early on in your life. And it's um, something that I think we don't hear uh, really, <laughs> we don't hear these stories very often, although I can remember myself a couple of movies from the 80s about Iran that painted a certain picture for Americans. I'm wondering, maybe perhaps, you know, when you speak to, um, to audiences, perhaps parents with children or teachers, what are some of the messages that you would like in particular, you know, beyond sort of your own personal experience in the history, to understand about the current regime in Iran? And maybe you could talk mm -hmm. a little bit about specifically about the civic differences between today's mm -hmm. Iran and, and what we here experience in the U.S., a limited government, limited by the Constitution, and an independent judiciary, and as you mentioned at the outset, uh, quite a focus on liberties and individual rights. I'll take the first question about civics and civic life first. First, to compare the current regime to the previous one, compare one country to itself, but under two vastly different forms of government. Um, Iran before the revolution was a place where theater, the arts, celebration of ethnic and religious differences, the encouragement of child development and the arts and civic life for children, these were things that were very, very pronounced and, and considered pillars of national pride, things that people had in common. Some of the most successful business people in Iran were Jewish or Baha'i, 
two groups of people that are violently persecuted now and have, to the extent that they can, left the country. Women were being promoted in all kinds of ways so that they could be really in leadership positions in all parts of society, including government. After the revolution, women women were barred from really almost everything outside of the home. If not legally, then the environment was made so repressive for them that many women chose not to even try. And of course, there was sex segregation throughout society. So even a three or four-year-old girl could not play with a three or four-year-old boy. And so <laughs> I first do that comparison because it's so stark from, in front, from within the context of just one country. Now, comparing the current regime to America, you know, I live that reality as, a, as an individual, as a person. I live as a, as a free person in the United States, but my work, my focus, my advocacy, my purpose, if you will, is a democratic Iran. And so I'm, I encounter that very, very polarized, very radically different reality every day. Right now, as we speak, uh, there are protests happening in many cities throughout the country being violently repressed, and yet people continue, and they continue because it's an existential matter for them. Because the government of the current government of Iran, the Islamic Republic, like the communist regime in Cuba, is incapable, is structurally so corrupt and inept, uh, incompetent, that people lack the very basic human needs. In Iran, they lack water in the Southwest and other regions. Um, they lack water, they lack clean air, they lack any semblance of a work life that can provide for their families. And it's, it's very much the same thing in Cuba. Vaccines, um, water, food, pharmaceuticals. And uh, so, <laughs> you know, it, you want to talk about civic life and the differences in in civil liberties and political liberties, but really what we're talking about is, and it's hard for us to imagine living in the free world because life gets better better in democracies all the time. I mean, it's sometimes hard for us to see that because things have gotten kind of unwieldy, very polarized politics in America right now, uh, problems with a sense of unity and a commitment to civic education, all of that is, is, is there. But the thing is that in places like Iran or Cuba, people literally cannot survive. They cannot live because of the lack of freedom. I feel like that's an incredibly important reminder in this time, because as you say, these, these are incredibly polarized times in the U.S., but it is probably easy for us to forget that there, um, there are some major differences between what most people, what most Americans experience and, and, and their ability to um to change their own circumstances in contrast to what folks in other countries absolutely experience. I have a bit of a follow-up here, too. Um, you know, oftentimes one will read or, or, or hear about sort of um, a flourishing underground in Iran. So you mentioned at the outset mm -hmm. that prior to the shift, flourishing arts and, 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 I mean, we have great poets, thinkers, writers, out mm -hmm. of Iran that, that are read in, in here in, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and in the, in the rest of the Western world. Do you have any sense of how, um, how in the midst of this repression and in the midst of people 
not being able to access even the most basic of resources, um, that this under this this culture continues to flourish. One that one that celebrates the Iranian people and in mm-hmm. their abilities. Yeah, I mean it's really because of the lack of freedom. We had the same thing in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. Um, because of the lack of freedom, people write all kinds of very important, profound things, for example, in, on, in tweet threads. And they do so under pseudonym. But these uh, uh, people writing under pseudonym on Twitter about the political situation in the country, about the social problems, about the crises of people honoring their own conscience and engaging in civil disobedience against the regime or being co-opted by the regime. These are some important themes right now. These people writing under pseudonym are very, very popular. And um, uh, people um, in general, the masses, if you will, are familiar with what these people are writing and saying. And the slogans on the street are very mindful, very, very probing into the depths of the evil of this regime. And the Soviets, the Soviet people with their jokes, um, they had that, um, people really protesting against, um, uh, dissenting against totalitarianism in all kinds of cultures and religious contexts have always had that. So repression does tend to bring it out of people. And so does the hypocrisy and the lack of integrity that people see in others in life. It, it moves them to, to speak out. Personally, I have to say, I've greatly appreciated the satire of some Iranian authors. <laughs> in fact, mm. it's um, the political satire. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, want, I have one more yeah. question really specifically yeah. about Iranian women. And so I think that Many in the U.S. probably have a perception of of what a typical Iranian woman um, experiences or how her life is. And obviously, as you've noted, there were profound differences between, for example, how the women in your family, what they must have experienced prior to the revolution. Can you talk a little bit about Iranian women today, many of whom I assume are operating under some of those pseudonyms you have um, you've been talking about? Yes, of course, it's hard to generalize, you know, just as it would be hard to generalize about all American women or all uh, women in Denmark or something like that. But women in Iran today uh, are very much aware that they lack their most basic human rights and that those basic human rights are being denied because of a type of government, a constitution that is based on Sharia law, that is based on uh, religious tenets in, in the Quran, and really a medieval legal code. And that awareness is something that unites women of all different uh, backgrounds. So, for example, somebody like Gohara Ishki, who is elderly, frail woman, very much from a poor working class um, neighborhood. Her son was a was not formally educated. He was a laborer, but very erudite and wrote a blog uh, criticizing the government because he, because he did that, he was imprisoned and he was tortured and he was tortured so much that he was killed under torture. And she has become one of the most outspoken, most beloved voices for 
justice and freedom for all of the people of Iran. And so that's one type of Iranian woman with her aspirations and her demands that are very much the same as a young woman, for example, Sabo Kordafshari, who is in her early 20s, who is serving in prison, serving prison time. She has more than 20 years prison sentence because she has protested for women's right to dress as they choose. So this is the reality that unites these very, very different kinds of women. So Sabo is urban, young, very modern, very, you know, if you if you looked at her, you'd say she's hip like any young woman in, in Manhattan or London. The truth, though, is that she's serving in one of the most horrific prisons in all of the world. And uh, her aspiration is for the very same, very, very, very basic fundamental freedoms that the woman I mentioned who's working class, not formally educated, mom of a young man who was tortured to death. Miriam, a question about you and your work, and then a little provocation uh, based on that question that lives real close to it. So Tavana, the organization you co-founded and co-directed, is dedicated to a free and open Iran. Uh, would, you share, would you share with our listeners the important work you've done, your efforts in the past, um, in particular how you've used the internet as a means to advance uh, democracy, civic education, and women's rights and then I think the, the sort of provocation on that is that I think we all know that the, the Internet is an incredibly important tool in helping to harness the unrest of grassroots movements, sort of like straining for to break free or trying to reach liberty. And we see that in Cuba right now with the shutdown of the, of the Internet. Um, uh, you know, we saw it in the Arab Spring and, and, and other places where these revolts are sort of like came together on Twitter. But that power also is has been harnessed to great division. And obviously the United States is an amazing example right now of how, you know, like the algorithms polarize the hell out of people, um, which mm-hmm. is the downside. So what are mm-hmm. your thoughts on how to uh, uh, on how to manage, I guess, the unintended consequences of such a, uh, of such a, a power as well? In Iran, we don't have that polarization problem, but via algorithms so much because the the common enemy of the people is so obvious. You know, people are so united against the regime that the that the algorithms thing only works really <laughs> to unite all of the people against and against the regime. So it's it's really a remarkable difference when you look at it and compare it to say, you know, partisan hyperpartisanship and and echo chambers in the United States or in other Western liberal advanced democracies. But what we did at Tavana is we started the project in 2009 and launched it in 2010, really tapped into the power of the internet. And increasingly at that time, social media was becoming more and more relevant. And of course, you know, more and more valued and cherished by Iranians because it was their only way to express themselves and express their dissent. In 2009, the Green Movement in Iran happened. And so, of course, you know, the project really focused on compensating for, making up for the lack of opportunity to have civic institutions devoted to the development of civil society, the development of um, uh, resources, for example, for civic education. And 
To make a long story short, we made a lot of those resources available to people using the internet. And as social media became more and more ubiquitous, pushing those resources out through social media. A, a very important part of what we did, though, was was not just send things into the country, but really facilitated dialogue. And we had online, we have and continue to have online um, classes taught by Iranian and international experts in, in human rights, in democracy, in more specific sectoral subjects like environmental protection or children's rights. Or we focus, for example, a lot on educating about the Holocaust because it's, 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 it's a field of knowledge entirely forbidden in Iran, not just forbidden, but the regime also has annual Holocaust cartoon contests to make fun of the Holocaust and actually teaches in its official school curriculum all kinds of anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli attitudes. We have done a lot of that and the project reaches millions of people on a regular basis with all of those kinds of sort of hard democracy education, but also the softer, for example, you all mentioned satire, a lot of political cartoons, and again, ways of, of sparking thought and dialogue about what's happening in the country and, and how we can move towards democracy. So that was a great segue. I know you've served as a judge at the national finals of the We the People, the Citizen and the Constitution competition, which is a nationwide civics contest for American high, schools, uh, high schoolers that's run by the Center for Civic Education. Would you just talk a little bit about, about the program, about you know, the course of study uh, and how important you think you know, a knowledge of civics is to a functioning and rational democracy? Yes, the We the People program, which is a nationwide program that students from all 50 states participate in, is focused on the U.S. Constitution, is a program that I participated in myself the very first year it was offered on the bicentennial of the Constitution. This is 1988-89 when I was in high school. And it was the kind of thing where it's like, you know, I was reading the textbook, which I still have, and I still, I guard it, I cherish it. I was reading the textbook, particularly Unit 1, which is about the philosophical foundations of the Constitution, and I thought to myself, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. This is what can help me to understand the difference between why Iran is so, 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 so lacking in basic rights and dignity, and why America is just so exceptionally strong and open. And I was just, it's like I had waited my whole life for that curriculum. And there I decided that I would study political science and then devoted my career really to providing that same kind of opportunity to, to learn and reflect about uh, civics and um, democratic institutions, particularly you know, not just rights, but what are the institutions and what's the what's the constitutional setup that makes those rights possible? When I started to do more and more curricular de curriculum development for Iran with Tavana, created a partnership with the Center for Civic Education. Center for Civic Education created the curriculum for the United States. We the People program runs all all kinds of civic education programs throughout the country. 
and also has civic education programs internationally. And we took the best of their curriculum and translated it, adapted it, taught it in our classrooms to people living inside Iran, including teachers, giving teachers the pedagogic tools they need to be able to teach as much as they can without getting in trouble about democracy. There's a lot of uh, connections between basically the opportunities that I had here as an American, as an immigrant growing up in the United States, and uh, really taking the best of that as much as I can and making it available to people who are still in my country of birth. So Mary, just a last question, and it's kind of a meta question. So n- normally someone gets to paint the president and they hang that in the White House. You had a president paint you and put it in a Um, (laughs) You you were one of uh, 43 individuals whose portrait uh, former President George W. Bush painted for his April 2021 book, Out of Many, One, Portraits of American Immigrants. Would you just talk about what that was like? I mean, like you, you, you met him. uh, uh, He he, he did this. I've seen I've seen the painting. It's lovely. Like, what was this experience like? And and what would you want? Uh, you know, adults, kids, anyone listening to this podcast to just know about what it's like to be, uh, you know, to be an American immigrant? Uh, What what should they take away from the immigrant experience? Well, the immigrant experience, I think, um, is something that President Bush understood really well. And the fact that he devoted so much time and a book to it really does speak to how how good a person he is and how good a country America is. The Im- immigrant experience is really about being true to yourself. And America allows that. America allows immigrants to be who they really want to be. You would think that people are their true, genuine selves in the country where they were born and where they know the language and they know the culture and, and all of their... All of their um, family has always lived. And, and the thing is that, yes, those are, those are wonderful things that we have amazing associations with. And the United States allows us to keep so much of that, to develop it further, whether it's our food or our language or our habits. But the thing is that to be our true self as an individual, we need freedom. And to be able to really do what we love, to say what we think, to live as we like, um, requires the freedom that the United States provides. So it, so immigrants really are their truest selves and are able to um, also, like I have done, think more with compassion and with a capacity to give back to the country that they came from um, because they are Americans, actually, because they're, they are afforded a chance, an opportunity, and a freedom to be their, their truest selves. So Uh, That's why, you know, it's no accident that it's from immigrants that this country has always seen its its big innovations and hard work and uh, people coming into the political sphere and running for office because people really understand what the what the real, real prize of this country uh, is all about and what the founding fathers really tried to safeguard which is our freedom. And Maryam, it has been delightful to talk to you today. I'll thank you on behalf of Kara as well for being on the uh, on the Learning Curve podcast. If people want to find you on the interwebs, where should they go? 
Well, I'm on Twitter, and right now the protests in Iran are happening, so there's a lot about that, of course. Um, I'm my last name, at my last name, uh, Mimar Sadegi on Twitter. Thank you so much for this. No, thanks for, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And as always, we're going to close it out with the tweet of the week. This one from our friend Robin Lake. And it's it sounds like it's not about education, but in fact it is. She says, I am seeing a lot, all caps, L-O-T, of little kids who are too young to be vaccinated in Seattle stores with no mask. People seem to think this thing is over. It is not. Cases are rising fast, folks. Cases in San Diego jumped from 60 a day to 578 yesterday does not bode well for fall. You know, Darrell, I took two things from this. The first one was that I actually uh, was just saying to a friend the other day, wow, this being vaccinated thing, I think that I need to like chill out a little bit. Like we all sort of came really hot out of the gate. And, um, and then now we hear that these cases are on the rise again. But I think to Robin's real point here, um, you know, this is going to be, of course, nobody wants little kids to get sick. Uh, we are eagerly awaiting these vaccines, but I think most people want the school that they want to be open for them. And there's already lots of talks within different departments in the Boston Globe this morning, you know, uh, saying, will masks be required? Will masks not be required? What's that going to look like? My prediction is that's going to look like a lot of people saying, well, we just can't open the schools. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what Robin's getting at. What's what's your take on this, Darrell? Yo, without wading into uh, epidemiology, about which I know nothing, um, I think you're right. Uh, li listen, like I was, I was on Twitter last week or two weeks ago, and Randy Weingarten was tweeted, or the bot that is Randy Weingarten tweeted. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm really concerned about this Delta variant, spread of the Delta variant. And and listen, I want you to know, the first day I could get vaccinated, I got vaccinated, right? So. Oh, I, yeah. And I and I I had COVID last year, so I'm so I'm I've 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 gone hard. You know, it's no joke. I've gone the whole thing, right? But I looked at that and I was like, you know, I was an English major in college. That's foreshadowing, right? Whether or not schools are supposed to be disrupted this fall, shut down or not shut down for good reasons or bad reasons, some of them are going to get shut down. Like the signal that's being sent is that the ability to use COVID as a reason to disrupt learning provides so much political leverage for people who need political leverage in schools that you can't give it away, right? So um, for, for me, like in, in looking at that, I just have like two, um, other than commenting on Robin's prescience, I, I just have two things for, for everybody to, to, to think about, all of us to think about. One, if you got that child care tax credit, put it in the bank and use it for tuition. That's the first. That's there you the first go. The, the second one is just like, um, I just think everybody should just get real about the fact that going back to school in the fall is not going to be normal. And that's why you shouldn't be doing things like eliminating a virtual option when you don't know if all the schools are going to be open every day all year long. Yeah, that's right. And I think, though, the one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is the number of states, you know, we, obviously we had a historic year in terms of the expansion of different kinds of choice programs, I'd like to see a lot more to the point that you've been making around course access and just freeing up kids to stay within what we would call the 
public system, but you know, that it is a large, there should be opportunities within it for everyone, right? There's also a lot of more opportunity, you know, we're seeing Ohio just rolling out a micro grant using its um, ESSER funds that, you know, I mean, let's, yes, the child tax credit, and also could we give, could we use some of this federal money, give every family that needs it a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks? Yes, you can, and even in a lot of states, you could use just one of the buckets and yeah. it would still be a teeny tiny percentage of the overall money. Totally. And that could go to Kumon, whatever you need. So I'm with you. I I don't want it to happen. I think it's happening. And um, I'll just say this. I'm still masking my kids and hoping that they're going to be back in school. In yeah, when I'm, when I'm on a plane, I, I got it. But the, Oh, know, double masking. Yeah, on the plane. Uh, Other uh, than that, you know, the, the question is, how are you at a bar? But I, I am, No, no, the, the bar, the, the, all the bars there, they're like, you're over cognizant. So I'm just going, you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole nother podcast. Darrell, it has been so much fun to have you and, um, you know, threw a lot of shade at Gerard. Of course, we missed him. But really, thanks so much for stepping in today. Great conversation. And we hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Okay, next week, folks, uh, make sure to tune in because we are going to be speaking with Robert Woodson. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center that supports neighborhood-based initiatives to revitalize low-income communities, as well as the author and editor of the May 2021 book, Red, White, and Black. Looking forward to that. Darrell, until next time, whether you're a guest or a co-host, we'll take it either way. Take care of yourself. Uh, Be safe on planes. And I'm hoping we'll see each other in person soon. You too, and me too. All right, take care.